If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 1. Last week we finished the book of Ezra, but not the story of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem after the exile. That story continues in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah and Ezra are one book because it is one story that covers about a 100-year period right after the uh, return. So in Nehemiah, we're moving on to the next, the next part of the account of how God restored His people after they had been removed from their land because of sin. So here's what we know so far in the story. Uh, with the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, the first wave of exiles returned under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And they rebuilt the altar and the temple that was destroyed that used to stand in Solomon's day. Eighty years later, with the decree of King Artaxerxes, a second wave of exiles returned with Ezra. And he brought the book. He brought the law of Moses and began to teach it. And that resulted in widespread conviction of sin by the people. Many of the Jewish men had married women from foreign lands and their idolatry was filtering into their homes and it was creating a real problem, so there was conviction. Now we fast forward 13 more years and we meet another leader who will come to Jerusalem also with the support of King Artaxerxes his name is Nehemiah, and God is going to use him to add one more element in the renewal of Israel as God's people. So we're going to see that Nehemiah is a different kind of leader than Ezra. He has a different personality altogether. For example, when Ezra discovered the scandal of the mixed marriages in grief, he pulled out his hair. Nehemiah, on the other hand, when he encounters a similar situation in his time, pulls out other people's hair. <laughs> the hair of the offenders. So Nehemiah is sort of a Peter-type person who's a speak-first-take-action, let's-go-after-it kind of guy. And uh, that, is, that makes for lively reading when we go through the book of Ezra, or the book of Nehemiah. Uh, he is a different kind of leader, but both kinds of leaders, the reserved shepherd that Ezra was and the take-action bold leader that Nehemiah is, both of those have their place in God's plan. So with that introduction to the second half of the series, let's read Nehemiah chapter 1, and then we'll ask the Lord for his insight on how it applies to us today. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, everything that you wrote in days ancient to us was for our endurance and our encouragement in the faith. And so it is with this passage. We, we have encouragement here. We have something that gives us endurance and steadfast hope to see that you have worked over the centuries, over the millennia, you have worked to bring about your good plan into this world that's broken by sin. And so we pray that today you'll enliven our hearts and see what you have here for us. Thank you for your servant Nehemiah and for the writings that you inspired so that we could pay attention to what you did then. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with something from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, all these things being the basic necessities of life. In other words, you, you need to eat, you need to have shelter, you need to have clothes, you need to have all these things that go along with just living, but don't make those things your whole aim in life. Don't obsess over all that self-care. Rather, make the kingdom of God your main passion. Because if you do that, God will see to it that you have everything else that you need. What is the kingdom of God that we are to seek first? Well, that is shorthand 
for all the good that the Lord wants to do in the world through Jesus Christ. It is saving people from their sins and from the penalty those sins deserve. It is renovating lives from brokenness to beauty, from abuse and neglect and violence and deceit to love, generosity, goodness, honesty. It's replacing the destructive pride of man with this wholesome trust in God, our Creator. All these things and more are the kingdom of God. It's the restoration of a broken world through the Savior who took the blame and the punishment on Himself for how we have wrecked things. That is what we are to seek first. That is what is to occupy our hearts even more than getting our basic necessities. But what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God? What does that involve in action? Well, in Nehemiah, we have an example. His reaction to the trouble in Jerusalem teaches us the traits of a person who is seeking first the kingdom of God. Because as we'll see, Nehemiah was in a good situation, humanly speaking, right where he was in Babylonia, though it was the land of exile. He was cupbearer to the king, which we'll see was actually a prestigious job. And we'll come back to that later. But his heart and his soul were not in Babylonia. His heart and soul were wrapped up in another place, in Jerusalem. And in the Jewish people there, his brothers, and with what God promised to do there, that's where his heart was. He sought first the kingdom of God. So we're going to look over this passage and see what's transferable to us from his life. What does it look like for us to seek first the kingdom of God? We will learn some things from Nehemiah. Here's the first thing we learn from the story. A heart moved by brokenness. That's, that's what it looks like to seek first the kingdom of God. Our hearts are moved by brokenness. And by brokenness, I mean the trouble and the wreckage that results when God's kingdom is not visibly operating. And what Nehemiah becomes aware of is that Jerusalem and the life of the people there is not all that God intended for it to be, far from it. Here's what happens. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa. That's about a 1,000-mile journey from Jerusalem. Some men come there from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asks how things are going. And the news isn't good. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. And when Nehemiah hears that, he's devastated and he weeps and he mourns for days. His heart is moved by the brokenness, but the gap between what it should have been and what it is. Now, we need a little background to understand what exactly God intended for Jerusalem and why this news came as such a shock to Nehemiah. One of the things that we can discern about Nehemiah from his prayer is that this is a guy who's steeped in the Scriptures. This guy knows his Bible. 
He knows the promises of God. In his prayer, he repeats what God said about Jerusalem, that it was the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. This place, which is described in Psalm 48 as the city of our God, the joy of all the earth, the the city of the great king. So Jerusalem wasn't just another place that people could live. You could live anywhere. You could live in Babylon. But Jerusalem had this special significance in the covenant God made with his people, Israel. It was the place on earth where God's kingdom was to be especially visible with people living in favor with their God, a place that's radiant with the holy presence of God and where the people's welfare is is just thriving. That's what it was supposed to be. Furthermore, God had promised through Jeremiah that when he restored his people to Jerusalem out of exile, the city would be rebuilt. Jeremiah 31, 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. So all of this is in, is in Nehemiah's mind. And by this time, Ezra has been in Jerusalem for 13 years. And the exiles have been there for more than 90 years. So he's thinking, surely now the promise is coming true. Surely now the city's being rebuilt. The walls are going up. It's going to be restored back to its former glory, including the outer wall. But no, no, the wall is broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. The remnant of God's people is in great trouble and shame. Now, this is most likely not referring to the original destruction of Jerusalem. Because that happened 140 years before this. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the whole city. And that's why they've come back to rebuild. So it's not that because this seems to be like a recent event. This seems to be a surprise to Nehemiah. And you might remember the future letter that was referred to in Ezra chapter 4. There was a letter to King Artaxerxes who was not king at that time. So it was another letter written way later, but inserted into Ezra 4 to show that opposition continued for a very long time. Well, in that letter, it was from the local officials who were opposing the rebuilding of the temple, or of just the city, actually. Um, And in the letter, they sent it to King Artaxerxes, and they charged the Jews with rebellion. They said, they're rebuilding this city, and uh, they're not going to pay taxes to you. They're planning a rebellion. They're, They're opting out of the Persian Empire, and that's what's in this letter. And so Artaxerxes gets it, and he says, well, put a stop to that. Uh, stop them from rebuilding it until I've had, you know, until you hear from me again. And so they get this letter in hand, and they go back, and that's what they do. They stop the rebuilding of the city. And it says that they did it by force and power. So that's all in this letter And in Ezra chapter 4, well, that letter was probably sent between the time when Ezra went to Jerusalem and when Nehemiah received the report. Because when Ezra went, the king was all in favor of building, you know, of the temple. He was all in favor of the law. He was all in favor of, you know, Israel's God uh, 
being on his side, you know, pray for the prosperity of my kingdom. But somewhere along the line, it seems that they began to build the city. The locals got involved, didn't like that happening, sent this accusing letter to the king, and now he's thinking, well, it looks like they're going to rebel against me. I mean, I was so generous to them, and now they're, now they're walling off their city. And so he put a stop to it. And the locals took that new decree, and they, by force and power, didn't just stop the building, they ruined what was being built. They, the, the walls were going up, the city was starting to be rebuilt, but they destroyed it by force and power, and they burned the gates. And that's what Nehemiah didn't expect. He thought it was going well, but it wasn't. And he was very moved by the fact that they were in shame and that everything was broken. So here's the question for us. Do we feel that way about the kingdom of God? When, when we don't see the, the, the name of God being exalted, when we don't see like, people's lives being restored out of brokenness, when we see like, evil winning the day, it seems, does that move us? Like, do we want to get involved in that? Does, does that break our heart? Are we moved by the brokenness of the world? Not just because of the injustice and the suffering itself, as bad as that is, but also because it is not how God wants it to be. Is, we, we, are dis, we are discouraged over the wreckage that's ultimately rooted in the sin of the world. We want it to be restored the way God wanted it to be. So do we long for renewal, not only with ourselves, but for others? Renewal that's rooted in the relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that many of you do have that heart, um, because I hear prayers on Wednesday nights pleading for the Lord to move in this situation and that situation. That's heartfelt. That's moved by brokenness. But also we see it in all the serving that goes around in this church, all the care, all the, the meals, uh, the rides, the encouragements, um, just the little things we do for one another, the ministry teams. All of those things, are people are invested in it because we, we want to build this church. We want to see the, the kingdom of God like living out among us, right? And we see it in all the ways we care for the vulnerable people, vulnerable children especially. Um, Operation Christmas Child, Rancho 3M, Covenant Mercies, all these things that, that we're invested in because they're for the, the vulnerable, the orphans. So that's there. We are moved by the brokenness of the world. We want to see God's kingdom come. We want to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we're human. We still struggle with this. We're a work in progress. Sometimes we don't care. Sometimes we're obsessed with our own lives. So when we get into that place, when we find our passion for the kingdom of God waning, here's what we can do to get back there. We can remember God's grace to us through Christ. God is not unmoved to see us in great trouble and shame, which we all are naturally. 
Each of us has been wrecked by sin, by our sin and by others, and we are not all that God intended us to be. But God is merciful, and He sent His Son Jesus to change that for all who trust Him as Savior. I like what the Scriptures say about how God felt about His people's trouble and shame in the book of Judges. It says, He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Or another translation, He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. (laughs) And that's the heart that sent His Son to us, that we might be rescued from our brokenness. So if we feel ourselves unmoved by brokenness, let's remember again how God has been moved to reach out to us. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's God's heart for us. That's the kingdom he wants for us and for all people to experience. So if we're waning in our affections... Let's remember that. But the response goes beyond the heart that is moved by brokenness. It continues with prayer. It continues with an instinct to intercede through prayer. That is what it will look like if we're seeking, the, seeking first the kingdom of God. Nehemiah didn't just weep and mourn and leave it at that and be very sad. It says he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He, he took his mourning and he turned that God word in prayer. And his prayer occupies most of this passage. If we're seeking first the kingdom of God, if our hearts are wrapped around his purposes in the world, prayer is going to be our instinctive reaction, especially when we don't see the kingdom of God advancing. Because prayer is a recognition that the brokenness of the world is something that only God can fix, ultimately. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than just the lack of resources or education or opportunities or relationships, things that we can supply. No, the brokenness of the world is also spiritual in nature. It's the fallout of man's separation from God. And as Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Realities like that mean we need the Lord to intervene with His power because He has power over all of those things, even the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we don't. So we go to him and we say, would you move? (laughs) Would you do it? Now, we can learn a lot from how to pray, about how to pray from Nehemiah's prayer. And prayer is something that we learn to do. I mean, the Lord will, he will hear the simplest prayer (laughs) from from the little child. But we don't always pray that all, for all that we should pray or with the confidence that we should pray. Here's the kind of prayer meeting that can feel that way, like, like, like we're missing something. 
See if you can relate to this experience that pastor and theologian John Stott had in a church that he attended. I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito. I sat in the back row. When we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child, that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. I said to myself, it's a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, and world evangelization. Sometimes our prayers can be like that. Mainly, prayers about ourselves and our troubles. And those aren't bad things to pray about. Give us this day our daily bread is a good prayer. Deliver us from evil is a good prayer. Jesus told us to pray for those things. By all means, let's pray for the vacations and the births and the sicknesses and the evil things that are happening to us. But over all of that, remember, is hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers need to extend beyond ourselves to the world around us, to the brokenness that's there, because we want to see God's kingdom come. And we see those kinds of themes in Ezra or Nehemiah's prayer. Let me just point out a few of them. First of all, notice how Nehemiah addresses God. It isn't generic, it's specific. He doesn't say just God or Lord, but he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah starts there to remind himself that God is faithful, and God is loving, and God is powerful, and he can do anything. And given the situation in Jerusalem, we need Him to be those things if it's going to change. We're going to need Him to break in and do something amazing, but He can do it. But starting that way also was a humbling thing for Nehemiah because he recognizes the whole reason God's people are still in great trouble and shame is because they haven't kept the covenant with God. They haven't kept His commandments. If they had, they never would have been in this situation. They never would have gone into exile. The city never would have been destroyed. They wouldn't have to rebuild anything. So he's aware of that's the background behind this present trouble. There's this history of rejecting God. And he's saying, and then there's just this new version of it. There's still something going on there that's not right. And that's why in our Wednesday night prayer meetings, we start out acknowledging first the attributes of God, something that gets our mind off of us and onto who He is. And then we consider our own unworthiness to receive anything from Him, as well as confidence that God is merciful. 
and that he is forgiving and hears the prayers of his people. It just puts us in the right frame of mind, that combination of confidence and humility. And it's helpful to do that in our individual lives, to, to be in the practice of that. And along those lines, Nia goes on to confess the sins of his people and his own sins. Um, as with Ezra's earlier prayer, there was no sugarcoating going on here. In verse 7, he says, We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. No, no punches are being pulled. How often do we come to prayer with that kind of self-humbling? Um, isn't it true that sometimes we come as if God owes us something? Um, as if because we've been good people in our own eyes, that God would be unjust not to give us what we ask for? Not to relieve us of some trial or pain? But Galatians 3.10 tells us what we really deserve apart from God's grace. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's what we deserve. Curse. Our starting point in prayer is never that we deserve something, but that God is gracious God is merciful, and He does not deal with us according to our sins. Not if our faith is in Christ, because He dealt with Christ according to our sins. That's what the communion message is about. But Nehemiah doesn't start, he doesn't stop there. After contrition, he moves to intercession. He asks God to remember His promises to His people Israel. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. In other words, Lord, yes, your people are in great trouble and shame, and we have a history of rebellion against you, but they're still your people. You made a covenant, and now you've brought them back to this place, the city of the great king. You move the hearts of kings to get them there and resources to build the altar and to build the temple and you gave them your law. Surely you don't intend to stop there and just end it all. Surely you intend to bring your promise to pass that this city is going to be rebuilt. That's intercession calling on the promises of God for their, their fulfillment in the lives of people, even though we don't deserve it. But you, God, you are faithful to your own word. So would you do this? Would you do this for them? My heart is wrapped up in this, that you do this. That's intercession, bringing people before God in their guilt, in their struggles, appealing to his merciful heart and his faithfulness, appealing for him to act, to forgive, to restore, to show, show his glory. And isn't that exactly what our Savior did? He intercedes with, for us 
with more than prayers, but with his, with his own blood, with his own life. He took our guilt before God, and he claimed it as his own, and he took the punishment in our place, rising to life that we might be forgiven and rise to life as well. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus intercedes for those who trust in him by eternally bearing in his body the nail marks that won our salvation. It is the everlasting reminder that our sins have been properly punished and God's judgment satisfied in the death of the Savior. That heavenly intercession is what guarantees our forgiveness and the forgiveness of all who trust in Christ. It is not anything that we accomplish by anything that we do. But we can intercede for people by prayer. We can ask God to move in the brokenness all around us and extend His grace and mercy to others. That will be in our prayer life if we're seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Not village prayers to a village God, only concerned for ourselves, but intercessory prayers for others as well. So seeking first the kingdom of God, it starts with the heart that's moved by brokenness. It quickly turns into prayer, but it doesn't stop there. It continues with a resolve to act on opportunities. A resolve to act on opportunities. And by that I mean opportunities to be part of the answer to those prayers. <laughs> to be personally involved in seeing that God's kingdom comes and His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The last thing Nehemiah prays reveals that he has a plan in mind for how the situation in Jerusalem is going to change and that he's going to be a part of that plan. He prays in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he adds, now I was cupbearer to the king. I love how he throws that last bit in there at the end. <laughs> By the way, I was the cupbearer to the king. A little context all of a sudden. It doesn't mean he was a butler. It meant that he was the person responsible for making sure the king's wine wasn't poisoned. It meant the king trusted his life to Nehemiah. It meant Nehemiah was a high official close to the king. And that's a job that came with perks. This passage takes place in Susa the Citadel. That is the winter resort of the kings of Persia. And it was winter. It was the month Chislev, which is our November slash December time frame. So picture Nehemiah at a ski resort in Vail or Aspen, and that's pretty much what his situation was. <laughs> that's, when, that's where he got the news about Jerusalem. He was in Aspen <laughs> skiing. Pretty sweet deal. 
But more importantly, the cupbearer meant he was in a position of influence with the king. Maybe he could get Artaxerxes to reverse his previous decision to stop the building in Jerusalem. And maybe he would get permission to go help make it happen. And as we'll see in chapter 2, that was exactly what his plan was, to look for that. Now, in his prayer, he doesn't mention the plan that he has in mind, but he does ask the Lord to give him success and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being King Artaxerxes. The point is, Nehemiah didn't just receive the bad news about Jerusalem and then pray about it, though that was good and right to do. He also thought, what can I do about the situation? Is there a difference I can make personally? And as he thinks about his position, he realizes, you know what? I'm in a position that nobody else is. I have the king's ear. I have the king's trust. And if Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, we're going to need the king to say yes, because he said no before. And he's going to have to send somebody with some authority, with some letters that tell everybody, okay, this is how it is now. Let's build again. He realizes, I'm in that position. Why shouldn't it be me to see if this can happen? Seeking the kingdom of God doesn't stop at prayer. It continues with this resolve to act on the opportunities we have, to get personally involved, to make something happen, all the while depending on the mercy of God. But we get in the game instead of staying on the sidelines. We step out in faith and we try something. Here's what that looks like for us. We pray for the church. We pray for its ministries. But then we get involved in the ministries of the church. <laughs> we join up on a team. We do something that's serving. Uh, we pray for our church to have a gospel culture, a place of, of honesty about our sin, but also encouragement in God's grace. And then we take the first step to be honest about our sin and to be the encourager for other people. We pray for people to believe in Christ. And then we bring up Christ in conversations with people. Like we actually say something, right? Because nobody becomes a Christian unless they hear the gospel. And that means it has to be transferred through somebody. So we make ourselves available. We pray for the welfare of our city, and then we do something to help our city so that it's a better place for everybody to live. That's what Safe Families Initiative is all about. Let's get into the mess. Let's be intentional. Could we engage our city in, in any number of other ways? Sure we could. But why wait for the perfect opportunity to come along, whatever that is, why not just do the thing that's right in front of you? Why not just get going with something that's legit, something that you seem prepared to do, something you look like you're able to do? Why not just do? <laughs> and so that's what we're doing. A bunch of us are going through the process now. But here's where the rubber really meets the road, isn't it? Is the doing. This is where it starts to feel risky. Being moved by the brokenness of the world is good and right, but that's internal. 
praying for the Lord to move in the, in, the, in the community, in the church, in the world. That's also internal, and maybe with your group, with, the, with everybody around you who's all for the same thing, right? That doesn't feel risky. But stepping out into the mess of the world, doing something, that's where the resistance comes in. That's where we get nervous. That's where we get fearful. It will involve faith. It will involve some uncertainty about whether or not this is the right move. And on top of that, you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil working against every step of obedience in the direction of seeking first the kingdom of God. There's resistance from within. There's resistance from without. But faith pushes us forward, trusting that we're not alone, but that God is going before us and God is going with us. And God has great purposes for this world, and we're in the flow of those purposes. So this is going to work sooner or later somehow. (laughs) He will receive the glory. Nehemiah had fears. He didn't know whether the king was going to respond well when he brought this up. I mean, he prays for success and mercy in the sight of this man (laughs) because it wasn't guaranteed. Maybe the king still thinks Jerusalem is full of rebels and Nehemiah wants to join the rebellion. Maybe he's going to end up losing his job over this. Maybe he'll lose his head. That has happened to cupbearers before. So this was risk. He didn't have a guarantee, but he did have a resolve that I'm going to try. I can't not do something. This matters. God's name is is being obscured here. And something has to be done. And I have to do it. That was what he was thinking. But he had to trust God for what happens next. We'll be doing the same thing when we seek first the kingdom of God. We might not be in places of influence like he was. We're not in high positions. None of us are. But God has put us in our own situations, in our own spheres of influence. We're in offices. We're in homes. We're in bus commutes. We're in neighborhoods. We're in this church, and that's all by God's design. That's our sphere. And He has sent us where we are, and it's in those places. It's in this place, right here in the Denver area, where He's giving us opportunities and gifting to make a difference, to be a part of the answer to the things that we're praying for. So we can pray for God to move in the world, and then we ask, now, Lord, what can I do? And then whatever it is that comes to mind, we resolve to act on the opportunity, God helping us. So let me close with this. Getting involved in the brokenness of the world, it can be intimidating. I mean, it can be. Especially if you've got a history of trying something, it seemed like it all fell apart, and he's like, I just don't want to do that anymore. And then we just kind of retreat. But not for seeking first the kingdom of God. Because maybe that thing that we saw as a failure wasn't really, if you could see it from God's point of view. Maybe seeds were planted. Maybe something happened you don't know about. So don't think that you're authoritative in you know, interpreting what happened. What we want to do is look at the promises of God and what is He committed to doing, and are you a part of that because you're one of His? And if we are, if we're in the stream of what He's doing in the world, 
renovating it, changing it, transforming people, bringing his kingdom, then let's try something else. Let's do it again. Because something's going to work, and collectively, we know it's going to work. Because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's a guarantee that if you're, if you're about that, that it wins in the end. <laughs> the victory is coming. We find as we go forward that nothing will be impossible with God. We know the church of the redeemed will be built from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we get involved in that opportunity. Jesus did no less. The Son of God entered our human experience, and He got involved in the mess with us personally, took on flesh, went through the whole stuff that we go through in life died that we might receive life, raised to life that we might follow after him. He did all of that because he didn't wait. He didn't hold back. He got involved. So let's walk in his steps and let's just see what God will do as we seek first the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Well, I think about the opportunities, Lord, that are represented by even the number of people in this room, all the different spheres of interaction that are there, the different gifts that are, that are given to us. And I think, wow, we have influence. Even if in the big scheme of the world it seems small, it's not small to the people who are going to be influenced. And we ask you to help us to, to step out in faith and see you do great things for your glory, and for our joy, and for the joy of the people who are going to be touched. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.